0: Hello and welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast, a show where we bring you insights from media industry experts to help journalists do their jobs better. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. The Home Office is a UK governmental body responsible for keeping our citizens safe and the country secure, enforcing policies around immigration, crime, counter-terrorism and more. In recent years, particularly under the Home Secretaries Theresa May and Priti Patel, these policies have become subject to renewed scrutiny and criticism as journalists and news outlets analyse and debate the merits and legalities of a tougher Tory line on immigration. This resulted in stories and political scandals from Windrush to Rwanda. Today, we're going to speak to someone who understands both the worlds of the Home Office and the media very well. Nicola Kelly is a freelance journalist who writes mostly for The Guardian on immigration. She also spent seven years working in PR roles across different governmental departments, latterly in the media relations team at the Home Office in 2014. That was before switching sides and deciding to work in journalism. In today's podcast, we get insider tips on gaining access to sources and the red tape journalists can expect when reporting on a government department such as the Home Office. With a change in leadership in the form of new UK Prime Minister Liz Truss and new Home Office Secretary Swella braverman this conversation feels timely, so don't go anywhere. Nicola, welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast. Thank you so much for jumping on the show. Thanks for having me. Um, We normally start our podcast with um, a question called, what's a little known fact about you? Um that's a very interesting fact about you, which is that so often we hear about journalists um, going to the dark side, as it were, going to the world of PR and media comms. You've actually, in your own words, done it the other way, joined the light side and gone from comms to journalism. Um, I'm wondering if you could uh, shed some light on us. Um, why you made that transition and what it's been like?
1: I did. Um that's exactly the way I would put it, the dark side to the light side. (laughs) So I I went to the Home Office from the Foreign Office. I was posted to various different places, Brussels for a few years, Istanbul briefly as well. Um, The Foreign Office was, you know, by its nature, really outward facing, very dynamic, a really sort of engaging place to work. And I traveled with the then Foreign Secretary William Hague all around Europe. Um, I was involved in lots of different crises, like there was a British family killed in the Alps. Um, I did loads of really interesting work. Um, And then I went to Istanbul and I worked on Syria on the crisis there, um, which was really interesting um, and sort of merged into working with the White Helmets with the now late James LeMessurier. So I came with that background to the Home Office, (laughs) which is an incredibly different place to work it's incredibly defensive it closes ranks it's very insular Uh, and the time I went there was 2014 so it's the height of the hostile environment the net migration targets of tens of thousands sham marriages different things about student visas and things like that so off the back of that experience I decided to leave the civil service and move from as you say the dark side to the light side I mean the obvious question is why just to start with quite plainly what compelled you to do that? It wasn't me, the Home Office. The Foreign Office was very much me. It was working with people who had lived abroad and travelled and spoke languages and were interested and engaged with the world around them. The Home Office was quite a different beast. Uh, most of the people I worked with were work hard, play hard. They went out, um, you know, which was great when you're young, um, but yeah it wasn't the policy areas um were not were not necessarily in keeping with my morals and ethics let's say
0: Hmm. when when you left the the media relations world did you have any concerns that that would burn bridges with contacts
1: not particularly um In fact, the contacts there have been incredibly helpful. So I've just done an investigation for Tortoise um, and I kind of reconnected with a lot of people that I work with at the Foreign Office, but mainly at the Home Office. Um, And that's been really helpful uh, for pieces I'm working on at the moment as well. Um, I think more than anything, those experiences gave me a real understanding and kind of knowledge base, I guess, of how policy is made and shaped. Um, and I just in a conversation earlier this morning found that it, it also gave me a real understanding of the structure uh, and the processes that that different press officers have to go through. So when someone says something uh, like, you know, there's been a delay, um, I know the way they work. You know, I know what it's like on the inside. So I know that that's not necessarily always the truth. Um, but it also gave me a really good sense of what journalists um do uh, how they work and so I saw lots of reporters for the BBC about to go and do lives I spoke to Guardian journalists about what their editors were interested in Um, I ran press conferences and listened to the questions so it gave me a really good understanding of the civil service but also of journalism and the way that both sides work so just going back to your question it didn't burn any bridges I think it has served me really well um, in terms of contacts but also in terms of understanding and knowledge
0: do you think just building on your answer there do you think the worlds of journalism and you know the the media relations side the politics world do you think they understand each other very well um maybe you can lift the curtain for me in terms of understanding you know that that relationship
1: what what is it like i think they can understand each other a lot better with uh, more transparency and openness um much, much can be done to improve on that relationship and to make it a really constructive relationship. Um, I think with the Home Office, they have a sense that they've got a good grip on the media, uh, on what the media is reporting, what the next scandal might be, you know, what's kind of going on internally and how to to combat or manage those crises before they take place. Um Journalists are often in the dark about that, but there is so much going on. It's so fast paced um, and there is always a lot to investigate. Um, so, yeah, I think probably a lot more can be done to improve on that dynamic, to make it a smooth process. Um, mm. But the opposite is happening, if anything.
0: What you describe sounds a lot like journalism, to be fair, that always on, always something happening atmosphere. Does that give you some You know, thinking about now that you've investigated the inner workings, as it were, of uh, the Home Office. Does it give you some sympathy on on the demands that people are up against and maybe how the media should report on them?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think if we're speaking about the press office um, rather than the whole department, I appreciate, maybe sympathise isn't the right word, but I kind of appreciate the time pressures and the constraints and the competing demands that they're up against. And I know from my time there that, um, you know, the press office prepare lines in advance for certain policy announcements. Um, but most of what they do is defensive and they're always fighting fires. They're always having to uh, be quite reactive. Um, so they, they might at times have a standard line that they can put out. Um, but when they need to draft a response quickly or with any type of urgency, um, that's done quite differently. Um, The Home Office works very differently to other departments as well. So I work really closely with the MOJ and the MOD and the Foreign Office. Um, I know from working for them and also with them that they show journalist uh, respect and and courtesy in terms of deadlines, but also um, just the way that they deal with them. And that's not always the case with the Home Office.
0: Mm. Have you found journalism to be a little bit less hair on fire or...?
1: I mean, journalism is is much the same. I mean, a lot of what I do is news. Um, So, yeah, I think both on news and in investigative terms, it's fast-paced, dynamic, uh, but I definitely feel like I'm on the right side of things now.
0: Last month, Nicola contributed to a special slow newscast podcast episode from Tortoise Media called Hostile Environment Inside the Home Office. It's named after the policy of the same name. The podcast seeks to understand how Britain arrived at this approach to reducing the number of immigrants in the UK with no right to remain. Nicola was brought in in particular to shed light on the current home office work culture rustling up old sources and former colleagues to find out what is driving these increasingly hostile immigration policies, most notably the Rwanda deportation policy, a government arranged and funded one-way ticket for refugees arriving in Britain, destination Rwanda, an African country with a poor human rights record. It wasn't just Nicola's contacts that were key though, her experience as someone who used to work in the same office, here's a small clip from the show with Nicola speaking to the show's presenter, Jack Shankar.
2: So Nicola, we left each other outside Marsham Street and your task was to try to speak to as many current Home Office staff as you could. How did you get on?
1: It was really tricky, but I think I've got about as close to Pretty Patel and the inner workings of her department as you can get.
2: So that's sources within the Home Secretary's actual private office.
1: Yeah. Every morning, whenever she's not in her constituency, Priti Patel arrives at Marsham Street at about 7.30. She goes through security and up to her office on the third floor, where a private secretary will have opened the door and she'll have a cup of tea. It's a very impersonal place in there. So imagine a kind of corporate law firm with a heavy mahogany desk. And facing that desk is a whiteboard with Pretty Patel's top priorities. And top of the list, number one is stop the small boat crossings. So there's about 20 priorities. So deporting foreign national offenders, cutting crime is on there as well, the kind of things you'd expect. And then windrush compensation payments are in there, but towards the bottom.
2: And give me a sense of what it's like up there.
1: So it was described to me as adrenaline fueled, with one former aide saying they would deliver updates into the Home Secretary's office, return to their desk, and wait for an explosion. And rarely does time go by without a fire to fight, so that's a raid gone wrong or a grounded deportation flight, things like that. There's a constant sense that control is kind of slipping away, that they're only one story away from the next scandal. People are interested in the kind of behind the scenes take of what, what it means for a journalist to go about doing their investigation and sort of setting out your method, how you came about that information, um, sources, even if they're anonymous, um, and sort of presenting that information can be really helpful. And it sort of lends the investigation a certain credibility, I think, certainly in terms of the tortoise piece, it does. Um, it adds a depth to the reporting. Um yeah, and it also helps in terms of people if they try and discredit the story. <laughs> um, you, you've shown your workings, essentially, so that that can be really helpful. It also helps in terms of calling out bad practice. Um, so I don't necessarily think the journalist should be the story, but sometimes it's in the public interest to for people to know, um, you know, reporters are entitled to free speech. Uh, Freedom of the press is hugely important. And it's important, I think, for readers, viewers, listeners to know when that right has been infringed. Um, So a couple of times, relatively recently on Twitter, I've called out when um, the Home Office, as that's the main department that I work with, have tried to kill a story or um, in some way um, restricted... something or try to influence it i've called them out for that um and i don't think there's enough of that um so in both of those cases i without necessarily wanting to or meaning to have become part of the story or the telling of the story um but in both of those instances it's been really helpful
0: it must be interesting for you to be able to recognize the tricks of the trade as it were and to be able to say oh i recognize that practice can you Give me a few examples of the the tricks of the trade that maybe journalists aren't aware of and what to look out for.
1: Yeah, um, I think it's really interesting for people to know the sort of process. Um, So when a journalist calls in, um a st- stories are kind of prioritized and there's almost like a system like a light system and that if it's deemed important or urgent enough will go up to a minister sometimes to the home secretary if it's urgent um and then lines will be written and cleared um you until that point can kind of insert <laughs> um what what you need inserted in there um the sort of modus operandi of the Home Office is they want to be kind of robust they want to be seen as quite strong Um, so they will try to um, influence occasionally that can be quite intimidating um, for a journalist particularly when you're starting out Um, so yeah I think it's important to sort of go in there knowing your facts like the back of your hands like cast iron proof and evidence um to really know what you're talking about um not make any mistakes um and then obviously not to re- report inaccurately um but yeah just to go in there with confidence um and you know really knowing your stuff is is absolutely crucial
0: so the intimidation is intentional then
1: i think almost always yeah
0: so when it came to this uh, tortoise podcast How did your sources help? How did you make use of those contacts? How did you sort of rustle those up and go back to them? Where did that really prove key?
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of people I've known for many, many years, um, press officers, but lots of other people who are now at different levels within the department. Um, Some people have moved to other departments. Um, uh, Many have left Whitehall, and the people that have left Whitehall uh, can speak a lot more freely, which is very helpful. but basically, it was a case of going back and kind of reconnecting with old contacts and people that I work with and gain the trust of. Dipping back into a black book—not that I have a black book—but dipping back into <laughs> reconnecting with those contacts was was very very helpful. I then, you know, just set out what we were aiming to do. We were aiming to um, do a deep dive into the department to to better understand the culture nowadays. Some people weren't willing to speak understandably, you know their jobs are at risk. um there, the job was protecting the identities of sources um so pretty much all of the people I spoke to wanted to be anonymous, um people that still work there um those others that we spoke to um some people were willing to go on the record uh, at times we were. Um, cautious about doing that and we wanted to ensure that everybody's identities were protected um so that there were no repercussions i mean several hours of speaking to one contact in particular um and the stuff that i found most compelling were the anecdotes mm. um and just going back and checking that i could use those that they weren't going to identify my source was really crucial
0: that's actually a really good point um whether an anecdote could inadvertently reveal someone that's definitely well worth pulling out if you if you don't have that black book of contacts how on earth do you penetrate the beast as it were how do you gain access
1: um there's lots of there's lots of different ways um that people go about it and i I notice what lots of other journalists try to do is use social media so Um, you know, LinkedIn, sometimes people can be quite willing to talk. Um, I know that some people who've written sort of long reads and done deep dives into other departments have used LinkedIn. Um, Social media, always being kind of open, having your DMs open so that people can contact you if they want to. Um, And I think always being available, being, you know, accessible um, by your phone and having all of your um, channels open, as it were, that can be the best way of getting people to talk
0: Mm. you spoke about anecdotes the one we must talk about is the daily mail test because I was fascinated by this one share with our audience if you will uh, what the daily mail test is
1: so the daily mail test is um, for every correspondence emails whatsapp messages text messages absolutely anything obviously any kind of social media presence or public presence Every Home Office staff member, of which there are over 30,000, should be considering whether that correspondence could end up on the front page of the Daily Mail. And that goes through absolutely the day-to-day workings of that department. Um, If you think about any time you send an email, you're thinking, could this end up on the front page of the Daily Mail? That's pretty... um, time consuming I imagine for some people but also quite um quite worrying um and anxiety inducing for lots of people that work in the department and it goes back to what a few people said um that I spoke to about this kind of rule of fear um and I think it sounds like that's got worse and worse with every home secretary so I was there under Theresa May during her tenure um by the sounds of it under Pretty Patel, that's become even more uh, difficult um, to get around. So people have become more and more concerned about, um, you know, the next scandal and this daily mail test, but also um, what's the next wind rush has become part of everyday parlance. So everybody's sort of aware and concerned about, um, about the next scandal. What's the next scandal? What's the next story that's around the corner for the department?
0: One could say it it's not been that effective there's been numerous scandals over the last few years you think about party gate you think about matt hancock what's what's behind this leaky nature between journalism and politics at the moment
1: i mean it's incredibly helpful for a journalist isn't it Mm. Um, i think politically it's not quite so helpful um we used to say at the foreign office um I never really heard it at the Home Office, but at the Foreign Office, we used to say number 10 was like a sieve, Um, that almost nothing stayed inside uh, the government. Um, There were no secrets, but um, I think that's an argument for for the government to be more open and transparent to admit when it's made mistakes and if necessary to apologise and stand down. Um, Yeah, I think probably... Yeah, I think I, the government's changing really rapidly. Um, there's so many moves around, so many reshuffles. Um, and journalists are more open and available than ever before. So
0: some combination of the two, perhaps.
1: Yeah, I think it's probably easier for people to uh, to contact journalists now and, and reveal information.
0: Interestingly, what the podcast reveals to us is that internal resistance is growing in the home office the Rwanda deportation policy that we talked about before was not received well internally. As Nicola reported on, this, combined with a persistent rule of fear and non-existent avenues for complaint, has resulted in an all-time low for home office morale. That was until a rebellion group called Our Home Office formed, a relatively small, nascent and anonymous group of employees who, like Nicola, are growing jaded with the policies formed. We'll hear more about that in a second, But I also wanted to put to Nicola whether this internal dissatisfaction is another reason why there are leaks between the worlds of journalism and politics.
2: how big is this group? I mean, give me a bit of a sense of of who they are and, and how much of the Home Office workforce they represent.
1: So there's still a pretty small group of people actually organising things, but the support is coming from across the UK. So places like Peterborough, Liverpool, Sheffield, they're starting to put these stickers up saying refugees welcome on things like printers. They're putting posters up around, you know, the, the coffee room, the tea points and things like that. So it is growing.
2: Incredible. And, Are there other examples, you know, beyond this, our Home Office movement of people speaking
1: out? So there's an internal messaging board as well, which is called Slido. And I've been sent uh, screen grabs uh, from this platform. And the Home Office Permanent Secretary, who's basically the most senior civil servant at the Home Office, Matthew Rycroft, hosts these sort of internal question sessions uh, where he takes anonymous questions from staff and they're pre-approved and moderated and Basically, you put forward a question. If it gets a certain number of likes, it increases in popularity and gets pushed up the board. And one of the most popular questions that I saw was was talking about Ukraine or those fleeing Ukraine. And somebody said, why should this not apply to people fleeing war and persecution from other parts of the world? And it had something like 700 likes. So he had to answer that question. And another person said, shame, embarrassment and anger is what I and many others feel
2: yeah, and and just amazing that you've been able to see these leaked screen grabs kind of with, with your own eyes. Tell me if I'm wrong here, but it sounds to me like this is the beginnings of some kind of internal resistance movement within the Home Office. Yeah,
1: and that's exactly the language they use. They say they want people to resist and to bring about change. But that just shows the level of dissatisfaction that was already there before policies like Rwanda, which they say was a flashpoint for them. There was already discontent and disgruntlement um among home office staff. Um, and you know, these set piece presentational policies have only really made that worse. So a rebellion group will continue to grow as these very presentational policies emerge.
0: How much do you think will change in that respect under this new cabinet and this um the new secretary, Sweller Braverman?
1: She um she has said that she's gonna double down on Rwanda. Uh, She has mentioned pushbacks. The pushbacks policy is returning in the channel. Uh, She said she won't lift the work ban for asylum seekers, which had been discussed before she came into office. Um, And she's going to increase detention facilities. So it sounds like it's only really going to get worse, not to sound too cynical, but it does sound like it's kind of moving the wrong direction, really, Um, She's also said she's she's quite cynical about the left um, and judicial activism, which is a, a term that came about under Priti Patel, which is lefty lawyers, this sort of yeah left-leaning lawyers that have basically become activists. She, she's very suspicious of all of those people. So I think it all sounds pretty similar to Priti Patel, um, very sort of trenchant conservative values and views, but, um, Hopefully, I'll be proven wrong, but uh, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not overly optimistic at this point.
0: But more chances for journalists and stories, I suspect. Then, from from your answer,
1: let's hope so. Yes, yeah.
0: It's interesting you talk about the polarization because one of the things I really did take from the podcast, and I think it was um, Lord Blunkett that s- said this, is you know from from the Home Office's perspective they can do no right in the eyes of the media the left-wing media kind of feels like whatever they do is too tough the right-wing media is unforgiving of anything it does what's the right balance for the for the press at this stage where do we go from here you think
1: they seem to feel that they've got a good grip on it all and um, they've got the tabloids on one side who they can kind of keep sweet um the daily mail test is a, an example of that you know sort of being overly concerned about what the daily mail will write um broadsheets, um, some broadcasters sort of more centre maybe, and then outlets that I tend to work for, so the Guardian, Tortoise and others, are more sort of left-leaning. Um, I think there's probably some truth in, in what Blunkett said, which is, you know, how do you keep the press on side um, where you're just constantly fighting fires um, and sort of seemingly needing to be defensive? Um, I think there's probably a huge amounts that they can do to improve relationships with journalists for a start, um, we know they're entitled to a right to reply, of course, and we always include that in every piece. But they need to understand that we're doing our jobs, we're holding them to account. Um, and by improving that relationship and that dynamic and making it slightly more constructive, it it would be better for everybody, far less time consuming and far more uh, positive and constructive. I don't
0: want to, you to give away all of your brilliant story ideas, but what would you say are the key developments for journalists to keep an eye on uh, from the Home Office?
1: I'm really interested in this pushbacks policy. I think everybody's watching Rwanda very closely because of the hearing in the High Court that's going on. Um, I imagine Rwanda will kind of rumble on for a while. Um it's headline grabbing, um, you know, very toxic. But the pushbacks policy is equally as inhumane um, and, yeah, extremely toxic. So I think people should be watching what's happening with pushbacks just as closely as Rwanda. The asylum system, detention facilities that Braverman said that she wants to increase, I think that will be really interesting as well um, to see what happens with detention Uh deportations also. Um, And at the very beginning stages of the process, how asylum decisions get made. I think that's also really interesting. So it's kind of looking across the piece at the first stage, decisions being made, these big set piece policies, but also the kind of end stage of the asylum process, which is deportations or removals
0: on that process what kind of red tape do you think journalists can run into when trying to cover that story how do we perhaps reverse engineer some of that media training
1: yeah it's a really it's a really tricky one um i think case studies are absolutely crucial to all of this there's so many dry policy stories um which are necessary and very important um, but all quite newsy Um, I think every story, particularly on things like Rwanda, pushbacks, et cetera, but probably arguably on any home office policy, should have the voice of an asylum seeker or a refugee in there. Those are the stories that tend to be the most powerful. They tend to get the most traction with readers and viewers and listeners. Um, And that's a, a really foolproof way of cutting red tape and sort of bringing the humanity back where that's often stripped away. Beyond the
0: big hit stories that are gaining all of our attention right now, what are the other stories underneath the surface that journalists should be thinking about?
1: A few weeks ago, I uncovered a story on uh, facial recognition smartwatches, which is just one of the ways the Home Office is monitoring or surveying migrant groups. It says it's uh, foreign national offenders, but in its own documents, it says those subject to immigration control. You know, we know about ankle tags, we know to some extent about phone tapping, uh, we know about the different ways that the the department try to sort of control or monitor, watch and track uh, asylum seekers and refugees, but I think they're quite sinister and often very shocking to people about the ways in which technology and tools can be used to um, kind of undermine the, the privacy of, of very vulnerable people. I sort of paused and, and couldn't really understand how, how would that work? You know, I'm not exactly a technophile. So I sort of sense checked it by just asking, you know, how will that work in practice? Because if I, I feel like if I can't understand it, I can't convey that or explain it succinctly or simply to readers. I think there's a lot more to uncover there um i'm quite keen to to work on that also i think things like where there's a crossover with ukraine so for example the bureaucracy surrounding visas that would be really interesting to to continue focusing on and afghanistan and those left behind despite the british government's promises to to relocate or to evacuate people so i think there's there's a lot um there's a lot more to home office policies and stories than than rwanda and these kind of uh, you know big headline grabbing uh, stories How does the government write press releases? What's the process? It will have to decide on a set of messages, clear those messages with ministers. Um, If it's a big story, then possibly the Home Secretary. Usually it will go through special advisors first. And then from there, with an agreed set of messages, we can can draft a press release. And then that will also go in the box uh, for clearance. So it's It's not a quick process. It it sounds
0: very manufactured
1: as well. Oh, incredibly, incredibly Mm. manufactured, as is every photo opportunity, every uh, public appearance, every speech, of course. Um, Everything is very deliberate and constructed.
0: What are the sort of main things to watch out for on a government press release? What are the things which, you know, you you see them and you obviously recognise the trick or you understand, you know, where that's come from. What are the things which you immediately recognise that maybe, maybe others don't think about?
1: I always go to notes to editors almost first, actually, after reading the headline, because a lot of the detail, the background detail that they don't necessarily want in the public domain is hidden there. And I think that can be a really good way into a story. Uh, and to start, you know, clicking on hyperlinks, doing your own searches, speaking to your own sources and contacts and figuring out if it is what it says it is. So, for example, uh, last week, maybe a couple of weeks ago, the government announced this fast track deportations of Albanians, um, supposedly people who've just arrived in the UK on our shores. Um It was announced in a press release, so it was very much policy on the hoof, which is pretty standard procedure for the Home Office these days. Um, It hasn't amounted to any more than that. But in the press release, there was a notes to editors, um, and I clicked on that, and through doing my own searches... I found somebody who is about to be deported, who was just hauled in uh, to a detention centre and is awaiting deportation. And I spoke to him and, you know, within hours that story was was in the Guardian or up on the Guardian's website.
0: Good work. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's a really great tip. And would you leave our listeners with one kind of final takeaway tip for gaining access or gaining the trust of sources within the Home Office to fuel their reporting? What would it be?
1: And know your facts. It's absolutely crucial. Um, make sure you have cast iron evidence and proof. Uh, don't be concerned or intimidated um, into giving up documents or giving up your sources. Um, and really importantly, have case studies um, at your fingertips. So be able to say, as they often do in the commons, you know, we have a, an individual story. This is what they say. You know, what's your response? And um, There's nothing they can say back to that.
0: Nicola, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a blast. Really interesting.
1: Brilliant. Thanks a lot. Lovely to speak to you. There's a lot to try and
0: process here, but let's focus on the common ground Nicola has highlighted between the worlds of journalism and politics. For example, the similar always on work environment. Civil servants at the home office and elsewhere are also like journalists, just people doing their jobs and for the most part, not able to shape policy or voice their concerns. For this reason, and as many political journalists discovered in droves during the COVID lockdown and party gate leaks, they can be a particularly rich source of information. Get them on your side. Know your facts so you cannot be pressured into silence when the powers that be refute any leaks and Anonymous comments, and be aware always of how the specifics of your reporting might reveal your sources. Good luck. And let me know how you get on as well. DM or tweet me at JPG Journalism or the wider team at journalism.co.uk at journalism news. Clips from today's show, I should also say, have been used with permission from Tortoise Media. Check out the full episode of Hostile Environment inside the home office on TortoiseMedia.com. And finally, if you liked what you heard today, you can check out more of our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts by searching and subscribing to the Journalism.co.uk podcast. That way, you won't miss our next exciting episode. That's all we have time for this week, though. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.